Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm very tired post-Oscars. I am happy to be talking about the Oscars with friends. The Oscars were, in fact, this weekend. And sure, no one had seen any of the movies that were nominated. And yes, it was a weak year for movies overall. But still, it's the Oscars. We love them. Even if nobody's watching, and nobody was watching, viewership was down to 9.85 million viewers, which is a 58% drop, I believe. Uh, Very bad numbers. Um, But we still love them because of drama like this weekend's. In case you missed it, Steven Soderbergh promised a different sort of Oscars, one with a narrative and an idea, a little more cinematic. And cool, some of those ideas basically worked. You know, no musical numbers, longer speeches. Uh, An opening segment that I missed because I have two small children I had to get to bed before the show started. It's Uh, on the internet, Sonny. Some of those ideas didn't work. I don't watch the the internet, man. I watch this live or or not at all. That's that's how we we do it in the Bunch household. Uh, Some of these ideas did not work. Asking Glenn Close to twerk, for instance, and an interminable bit of uh, Oscar (laughs) trivia was the worst thing I've ever seen. Uh, And that time might have been better spent on the death montage so that each person got more than 0.3 seconds of screen time. That would have been fantastic. Uh, But the biggest change was mucking about with the order of the awards. Best Picture did not go last, as is custom. Instead, the final award was for Best Actor. In theory, Chadwick Boseman was a lock for his turn in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It would have been the perfect capper to a night celebrating a rough year at the movies, a chance to highlight the life and times of a great actor who died too soon. Uh, In practice, though, it did not go as expected because Anthony Hopkins won. Uh, He was not there to accept. And the notoriously awards-awkward Joaquin Phoenix mumbled an acceptance on on his behalf and kicked it to the credits. Um, I will be honest, this was my favorite Oscars ending of all time. Uh, Not only did the right person win the award. Hopkins is devastating in The Father, and Bozeman should have been nominated for Supporting Actor for his work in Defy Bloods, where he could have very easily won his uh, you know, kind of Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, but it happened in terribly surprising and abrupt fashion. It was an amazing turn of events. Alyssa, what was your favorite moment from the Oscars this year? I have to say, um, I thought Daniel Kaluuya's acceptance speech for uh, when he won Best Supporting Actor for playing Fred Hampton in Judas and the Black Messiah was just delightful. Um, He, I mean, he was just so, he was a combination of sort of genuinely enthusiastic, polished and thoughtful about what playing this, you know, genuinely iconic role had meant to him. And then you could just see him getting swept away by the moment, um, leading up to the just amazing point when he talked about how miraculous life was, including the fact that his mom met his dad and they had sex with his mother in the audience. Like, that's legitimately great television, right? I mean, it's someone who is famous having a spontaneous, joyful reaction um, and doing something that, like, he might regret, but that's on a sort of minor and human level, um, so that nobody is humiliated or hurt. Um, I thought he was great in Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, I think he, you know, of the two performances that were nominated in that film, his, his was clearly the superior one and the one that showed greater range. Um, and so to see the right person win and celebrate it in a way that just felt genuinely wonderful was terrific. Uh, Peter, what was your what was your favorite moment at the the show this weekend? I mean, I too uh, sort of appreciated the kind of the, the chaos at the end, um, right? Which just didn't go the way they clearly had intended it to go. But also, 
like sh just sort of showed how impossible it is to plan these things and like to engineer the ending that you want unless you are simply you know sort of scripting out everything but even when they do that you end up with Glenn Close explaining debut <laughs> and twerking in a in an obviously scripted thing. sequence right it's worst like thing. it's a, it's meant to look like it's not uh, scripted except that it's obviously totally scripted and they admitted like 10 seconds after it aired that it was in fact scripted i would say the earnest answer here if i want to give you a moment that i thought actually worked pretty well um and was and was just good was tyler perry's speech and like tyler perry is is someone who makes movies that i do not like i don't think i have ever enjoyed a like 15 minutes even of a movie made out of the Tyler Perry studios, though I think he himself is actually quite a good and in some ways even underrated actor when he shows up in other people's movies. Um, but uh, but Tyler Perry is an incredible businessman and entrepreneur, somebody who thinks really well about the business of movies, somebody who thinks about about movies both as art and as product, right? Which they just have to be in order to, in order to make these things where even the cheapest movies just cost incredible amounts of money take incredible amounts of time he has put together like a, a factory to produce movies um and he's done it you know uh, in in georgia right which is yes also where disney goes but like he's done it sort of at in a uh, he did it outside in some ways the kind of traditional hollywood studio system and so he's just a really impressive filmmaker a really impressive kind of film entrepreneur and he gave a great speech about rejecting hatred in all of its forms and it's a little a little bit cheesy and a little bit earnest um but it was also like like decent and humane and smart and well delivered yeah, I mean, uh, we we had talked a bit about the way politics can kind of turn people off. You know, a producer from from a year or two before had said that when they look at the minute by minute numbers, the the uh, partisan political stuff is when folks start like changing the channel. Um, but I thought that I thought that uh, Perry had done a really Tyler Perry. He did a really really wonderful job of kind of making it a nonpartisan. Uh, more human moment than political moment. I mean, yes, he had a he had an idea he wanted to get across, but it was not uh, it was not political, really. I mean, look, I, I, I we had kind of talked about whether or not they'd mentioned China. Of course, they did not. Um, what is interesting is news out of China this morning that the Chinese government is censoring any news of Chloe Zhao winning Best Director because uh, she had made. Uh, comments about you know the China being a country of lies and some some sometime in the past. I mean, do I I I we were g chatting about this earlier today, Alyssa, and I said that that Marvel has to be just sh shitting shitting themselves right now. Um, you know, pardon pardon the vulgarity, but I like they have to be exceptionally nervous because she is the director of one of their big tentpole movies coming up, The Eternals. Uh, those movies do big business in China and Disney is on kind of a cold streak in China right now as it is. I mean, I like I'm curious what you make of this win for her standing in China. I mean, <laughs> everything about this is fascinating, right? Because Zhao is making history as the first woman of color to win best director for a movie that is entirely about um like old American white people um, who are suffering under a particularly American <laughs> economic system yeah. and is going from that to making a ginormous special effects movie starring Angelina Jolie as like sort of a knockoff Athena. I have not actually read the Eternals comics, um, but just reading, like judging by the descriptions of these characters in this movie, it sounds ridiculous. And so 
I have a lot of reactions to this. Uh, one of them is that it is kind of delightful that after a decade spent sort of like hoovering up indie talents and sending them through the Kevin Feige like patented hom you know homogenator that uh, something kind of weird is happening <laughs> to Marvel as a result of scooping up one of these indie talents and expecting them to sort of put a gloss of respectability on a movie uh, without necessarily being terribly distinct or interesting. Um, second is, you know what, if Disney is terrified about its entanglements in China, good. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the uh, House of Mouse- How do you Ma really feel? Uh, look, the House of Mouse has walked this line of, you know, being kind of America's entertainment company while, you know, shooting movies in provinces where ethnic cleansing is happening and, you know, being trying to sort of get credit for being lightly political in America, even as it collaborates with Chinese censors to get access to a big foreign market. And that was not going to be tenable forever. And I'm glad that the music is maybe starting to stop. Um, this is not a great situation for an industry that paints itself as a defender of American values. Um, this is not a tenable long-term situation. Um, and it's good that someone's going to have to reckon with it. Um, I don't, you know, I don't wish Marvel any ill. I wish their products were more interesting and, you know, aimed just like a little bit higher um, on, on the ambition scale. But I do not think that this is a balancing act that could last. And I think it is appropriate that it is being upset in a way that no one necessarily could have predicted, right? I mean, you know, it would have been very easy for the Chinese Communist Party to take Nomadland and say, like, America is terrible. Like, look at this brave Chinese woman who is exposing the evils of American capitalism. Yeah. Um, but the whole point of playing ball with a dictatorship is that they're not predictable. At some point, they will bite you. They are not, you know, these are, this is not a reliable, principled relationship that you can depend on. Um, and the fact that, like, Chloe Zhao, director of Nomadland, and now this insane comic book movie, is the person who is upsetting the apple cart, totally by accident, is the perfect illustration of the, just the basic unpredictability and instability of the situation. So I, I think yeah. it's not completely by accident. Like, in some ways, sure, these things are always a little bit random. But there is... There is a sense in which Marvel's strategy of playing to the Chinese market in some ways by hiring a Chinese director, right? And by hiring, there's an international cast and et cetera, et cetera. But by hiring a Chinese director, you can, in some sense, if you're Marvel, you can tell your Chris's, hey, don't say anything bad about China. But who can they not say you have no opinions about China and the Chinese government to? They kind of can't say, Chloe Zhao, you're not allowed to, to have any opinions about this stuff, which is the traditional way. It's not even that you have to say a bunch of nice stuff about China. The traditional way that sort of big entertainment conglomerates go about this is that you just kind of don't say very much, except that the Chinese people are wonderful. And that's kind of it. Um, and you can't, you can't sort of manage 
someone like Chloe Zhao, who is who is going, who has both, uh, who has personal background there, right? Who sort of has license to speak on this sort of thing, and also who comes from an indie filmmaking uh, world where it's not just sort of pure corporate PR speak all the time. She actually has some things she wants to say about the world um, and wants to wants to speak in her own voice. And Marvel, um, in some ways, uh, sort of uh, you know bought this. Like this, their strategy of of trying to appease the Chinese market by having someone like Chloe Zhao direct their film uh, was inevitably going to produce someone who had more license to criticize the Chinese government, and that is going to complicate things for them. And I, you know, I was just looking at some box office numbers here. Um, if you look at uh, if you look at Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy Two, um, the first one made about eighty six million dollars in China. Uh, the second one made about a hundred million dollars. China is a huge market for for Disney and for Marvel in particular, and even like even a, a an only modestly successful Marvel movie is going to make a ton of money. It was assumed to make a ton of money in China. And so if Marvel ends up in a conflict with the Chinese government, which, which as we know, and as we've discussed here, uh, has a limit on how many foreign films they accept into the country each year and exercises really strong controls about which films, uh, which films get a lot, get played in the Chinese market. Um, Marvel has in fact added scenes and sort of uh, done stealth edits to their movies uh, to make Chinese specific versions of their films uh, in in the past because they value that market so much if marvel gets into into a fight with with the chinese government here it is a huge huge financial problem for them yeah, yeah. i mean the one thing i would just gently push back is that you know disney has in especially in its very recent film slate been pushing back been trying to appeal by to china by kind of playing conventional american identity politics right it's you know we'll remake mulan and we'll shoot a bunch of it in china we will you know we'll do ryan the last i mean ryan the last dragon is more about vietnam than china obviously um you know we will but it's a play for the asian yes. market broadly speaking yes obviously but, with, with the without you know sort of a, uh, just sort of treating all of Asia as the same. Right. Uh, you know, we'll, we will tap, you know, Chloe Zhao, not necessarily with a full recognition of kind of the delicacy of her position vis-a-vis -vis her family, her father's business, um, and the sort of relationship between the Chinese government and that business. And so, you know, Mulan and Ryan the Last Dragon both did fairly poorly in China. And there, you know, I think there is some... You know, there's some transition that was coming about, I think, in the Chinese market anyway. You've had, you know, a bigger string of internal um, domestically developed blockbusters. Um, and, you know, I think Disney was going to run into trouble with this market anyway. It had sort of hit a point where its strategy or a strategy that would have been easy to market in the U.S. It's like, hey, you know, this is the first Marvel movie that does X. Uh, was not necessarily playing in China in the same way. And so, you know, that kind of Midas touch was in a tricky place anyway. Um, yeah, I think it's very complicated, but I think yeah. it's a, I think it was untenable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a very real possibility uh, that we are going to see uh, the Chinese government try to extricate American companies from being big successes in 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 China in the hopes of really boosting their own 
domestic product. And I'm all for that, frankly. I, I think the best the best thing that could happen to American film companies is to uh, be forced out of the Chinese market almost altogether and to uh, be able to focus on uh, uh, other markets that do not, uh, you know, require censorship. That would be a that would be a big win for uh, certainly the artists, um, even if it hurts the bottom line. I mean, it a would, little bit. It would uh, also one, complicate one... things a huge amount for the studios, though, which currently great. you know rely good. on good on good. China That's for great. 10, good. 20 good. percent. I hope. It is. I hope it does. I hope it. I hope it. I hope they have to uh, be. I have. I hope they have to make products that are better and more focused on the domestic and European and South American markets than the Chinese market. That would be wonderful. But you know what they're uh, actually going that, to do, and Sonny, would, is just and instead, dump instead, more money we're going to streaming instead of, films. Instead of, instead of uh, focusing on this, we're going to move on to uh, the uh, one last exit question here, which is the ratings. The ratings are bad. The ratings have been getting worse year by year. Obviously, this year is, is weird and special. But the question is, and I think it's a fair one, is there a way for the Oscars to pull out of this death spiral? Because I don't think it really has very much to do with the movies that are nominated. If you look at uh, last year's movies, the uh, the the nominees included a billion dollar comic book movie, a Quentin Tarantino movie, all sorts. There was all sorts of crowd pleasing stuff. Uh, and yet that show was the worst rated uh, show ever before this one. I mean, uh, you know, this, this year again, special, um, I, I, I have no, I have no idea what the Oscars are supposed to do to win back audiences that are bleeding away anyway, for reasons that have nothing to do with the movies, really just audience viewing patterns are changing, uh, reasons that have nothing to do with, uh, you know, the politics of it, though, that I think, as a producer has mentioned, plays a small part. I mean, I, I just wonder if the Oscars are in a death spiral from which they cannot really recover. Uh, quickly, Alyssa. I think award shows are in a death spiral from which they can't really recover. I mean, even, um, you know, Emmys, Golden Globes, uh, Grammys, you name it, people have just not really wanted to watch people win prizes, even when there are flashier performances attached to them. Um during the pandemic, I think American tastes are just changing, and I'm not sure anyone's going to come back from that. Peter. Three words for you. Fortnite viewing party. That's it. No, like, that's, uh, that's, that's how all award <laughs> yeah. shows will be watched in the future on the big screen. You're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to learn to rocket jump over the Cannot. person in front of you in order to see the, digi the digital screen in the Fortnite world. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, moving on. If you enjoy the show, and who doesn't? It's a great show. This is a wonderful show. Everybody should love it. Way better than the Oscars. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we will have a special bonus members-only episode looking at the most important cinematic event of 2021 so far. That's right, Mortal Kombat. Uh, Peter and I will mansplain Mortal Kombat to Alyssa, who is very curious about why this is such a big deal. Uh, and, uh, she, you know, she's not a fan of the beloved fighting franchise. We're going to we're going to just, you know, put her put her on the right path. Maybe we'll get maybe we'll get to do an actual review episode and she'll watch. She'll, we'll convince her. She'll watch it with us. We'll be great. Um, now on to the main event, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. This is the latest MCU series to hit Disney Plus. It has wrapped. And I think it's safe to say that it was kind of a mess. 
The show is nominally about Sam Wilson, a.k.a. the Falcon, uh, and his journey to become the new Captain America. When he turns down the shield at the beginning of the series, unsure America is ready for a black Captain America, it gets handed to the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Medal of Honor winner John Walker. Cap's one-time best friend Bucky Barnes, better known to the world as the Winter Soldier, uh, is annoyed that Sam has given up the shield. But the Winter Soldier has his own demons to work through. Something-something, PTSD, I don't know. By the end of it, he's better. Uh, Sam, Bucky, and Neo-Cap John Walker face off against a group of terrorists known as the Flag Smashers, who are essentially glorified squatters. They moved into nicer digs during the blip, and they don't want to have to give them up now that everything has been snapped back to life. Uh, The trio gets an assist from an unlikely source, Baron Zemo, who has been in prison since the events of Civil War. Uh, If all of this makes sense to you, congrats! You have wasted your life watching MCU movies just like the rest of us. Uh, But uh, if it didn't make sense to you, I'm not sure why you're listening to this part of the show. Um, There are a whole bunch of interesting ideas in this program about the way nation states might have handled the chaos of the blip, about the idea of a non-superpowered individual like John Walker being thrown into the mix with superpowered people like the Winter Soldier or mechanically enhanced people like the Falcon or super soldiers like the Flag Smashers. Um, There's ideas about the way in which power can come from structures providing uh, order to individuals whose excellence surpasses the need for systems. There's all sorts of kind of interesting ideas in here. Um, And instead, it chose to focus on the absolutely least interesting thing that it could, whether or not America is ready for a black Captain America. I'm sorry, we're 13 years out from a guy named Barack Obama winning the White House. And I just don't think that this is a super interesting question any longer. Um, But like I said, the whole thing was a bit of a mess. There was a subplot about an airborne disease that was taken out of the show post-COVID. There's a subplot that that in in exploring all of this might have made the Flag Smashers seem more sympathetic. Um, Peter, what did you make of the show and its efforts to uh, kind of create some political cultural relevancy here? So, look, this is an essentially competent show in a lot of ways. Um, It both shows, I think... um, the, you know, in some ways, how superhero television can work, right, On a, if we're going to get it on a regular basis. Um, and also it shows the perils of just sort of like the kind of adapting the Netflix model of let's do a lot of this to the MCU and to the television format, um, right? It, it looks pretty good for television. Like the, the action scenes are not quite full blockbuster level, but like they, they look really quite strong. I mean, like it, it's they're quite effective. They're nicely designed, they're they're well-paced. They're so much better than stuff that we have seen on television, even in, in the peak TV years, um, outside of, you know, really big shows like Game of Thrones. So much better. I mean, I, I, I really think that you, you actually have to look at this and think, this is the sort of thing that just a couple of years ago would have been reserved for a big screen and for a big budget feature film. Um, uh, you know, there's some Marvel Easter eggs for the fa- for the fans. They go to whatever that um, that you know lawless town is, uh, where there's probably Madripoor, right? And like you see PG thirteen den of iniquity. Yeah, as you I see Wolverine's you favorite bar, and so there's plenty of that stuff, right? Um, it's got a kind of a political message that's a little bit simple and eye rolly, um, you know. And it's I, I, but there's also just like the whole thing just sort of ultimately doesn't come together. And I think the real problem um, is less that it focused on the question of whether America is ready for a black Captain America and much more that like, what the hell are the flag smashers? Like what? Like I just, I watched all six episodes and I basically paid attention to them. And in the end, you've got, um, you've got 
Carly Morgenthau, who's the leader, right, who's played by this sort of like really interesting looking young actress who also somehow manages to be like a complete personality void, just like she was in Solo. In Solo. Um, right, Erin Kellyman, who's like, you can see how she like sort of would, 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 would get parts because she really has a like a cool visual vibe and also just like... Every time she's on screen, it's just like, ah, what's on my phone? I'm going to tweet some bullshit at Sonny. Um, Right? And like, I just, and then, and like in the end, she's like, she like looks at, I don't even, I think it's uh, uh, the Winter Soldier, right? And and is like, I'm fighting for something bigger than myself. And I I like, I wrote this line down because I was like, what? What are you fighting for? I literally have no idea what it is they stand for and why. And it makes no sense at all. And so as a result, the movie, the, the the show just sort of seems dramatically inert because there's no clear conflict of ideas since one of the sides doesn't have any. Yeah, I, Alyssa, I, I mentioned this to you guys when we were when we were kind of watching the show and wrapping it up. But I, you know, there there's a there's there are interesting things to be written about the blip and how, uh, you know, governments and individuals would have handled the blip. And you and 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 both WandaVision and this show have kind of touched on them, um, but they've done so in the worst, most pathetic, facile ways possible, right? Am I, I like what is what 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 are we? Why are we being? Why are we having our time wasted by by these you know these these nothing plot lines? Yeah, I mean the blip. I mean, if literally half. I mean, we have been through a cataclysmic event where 3 million people, um, so a tiny percentage of the world's population, have died in a year. And it has been astonishingly traumatic, right? Um, there have been political disruptions. There are people dying in the streets in India and getting free oxygen from Sikh worship centers because that's the only place they can get it. Um, if half the population just disappeared in a minute, it would be more cataclysmic than any like let's throw an alien whale through a building nonsense could possibly be um and marvel Mm. is not prepared for that level of grief or actual emotion not to mention the profound economic disruption right i mean like if half of the population disappeared overnight you would like even going to full employment including child labor would not replicate the existing economic activity right yeah the economy <laughs> would completely melt down and i mean like again just to look at what's actually happened in the united yeah. states we've had you know we're a million or so unemployment claims a week which is just like shockingly huge and it's like it is it is also still a relatively small share of the population um, like it's not half, it's not a third, it's not ten percent, right? It's, I mean, um, you know, has has lost. Uh, maybe it's close to ten percent. Um, but it's right. But it's a, like a, a comparatively much smaller percentage of the population, and Marvel just doesn't have the kind of narrative bandwidth to deal with any of that. Yeah, nor does it actually have. You know, despite the pretensions of this, um, you know, season of television or whatever you want to call it, um, it does not have the capacity to deal with grief and trauma in any real way, right? I mean, if half of the world disappeared, be like the instances of people just going insane and doing things far crazier than shooting themselves up with super soldier serum and like, you know, founding bullshit movements that sound like they came off a college campus. And I'm sorry, my voice is dying. Um, Like people would go completely bananas. <clears throat> yeah. And... Marvel does not have the capacity to deal with that because it would get in the way of the fun. 
And that's okay, right? But the inability of, you know, Marvel really wants to, in every case, you know, commercially in its relationship with China, um, you know, tonally in its commitment to the PG-13 rating, Marvel just wants to have it all, all of the time. And you kind of can't with an event like the blip. Um, you cannot just press the reset button that way. Even if everybody came back after five years, like people who assumed their spouses were dead would have gotten remarried. Like they would have had new families. <laughs> you know, I mean, just, yeah. and yeah, yeah. it does not have that room. And similarly, it does not have the actual fortitude to handle a subject like institutional racism. It just doesn't. And there's actually a really easy way for Marvel to have sort of ironed out the plot in a way that makes sense and provides a bunch more focus to this show, right? Sam could take up the mantle of Captain America. There could be an actual in-show racist reaction to him having that role. Because, yeah, I mean, the majority of Americans would be fine with a black Captain America. Like, the U.S. government would probably jump on the chance to, you know, play with that kind of symbol and with diversity. But there would absolutely be racist yep. loons who went bananas sure. and tried to kill him. Um, so you do that. More likely like, they just complain on Twitter. They would yeah, just be, there would be lots of like, racial slurs on Twitter. And yeah, then, like, yeah. you know, like some message, like the Ron, Ron Watkins would like lead the international anti-Sam Wilson as Captain America movement. Um, I don't know who that is. I don't understand that reference. <laughs> that's I'm sorry. A, that's probably a good thing. I've spent too much time <laughs> writing about QAnon. Um, but, you know, so there would be a reaction. And then in the plot, you know, you have Sam belatedly discover um, the existence of Isaiah Bradley and the origins of the program. He quits and the U.S. government then turns to John Walker, who they think is going to provide sort of a measure of stability in the role. Um, and it's about the sort of like crashing and burning of returning to that kind of symbol of American exceptionalism um, and how that doesn't work. It doesn't serve the cause of anti-racism. It doesn't serve sort of the Captain America role. Like you could have Sam do something that he thinks is kind of radical, but that ends up being a cop out, right? Like it could be an institutionalist argument for participating even in really deeply flawed symbols and institutions. But instead, like you have him do something that doesn't really make any sense. He takes up the mantle of Captain America at the end of the show. You see no sense that anyone is upset that a black man is Captain America. He gives the speech about it, like sort of nebulously connecting his own relationship to the brand to like what the Flag Smashers stood for on some level. <laughs> and it just... Which nobody knows still. It's still no no one no one has any idea what they stand for. Yeah. Those flag smashers, they stood for something. And that's something they wanna, it was they really smash flags. Definitely uh... a thing that they stood for. And yeah. I have I you know, and I think we need to think about that because it's important that if you're gonna stand for something, it actually be a real thing. And this is actually I thought that speech at the end was just, just like awful. Was just awful. And also like it's awful in, in in that it's so vague and so sort of saccharine and earnest and like but also has has no real content and it's not it doesn't just have no real content it celebrates the fact that it has no real content in the text of the speech because there's this one moment that's like almost interesting 
where where the senator is like, look, you don't actually understand any of the details of like the of housing policy post blip, which in fact would yeah. be quite complicated for <laughs> real practical reasons that are not like yeah. that are not like this guy's a giant racist. It's just yeah. that would be super complicated. Yeah. And Sam looks back at him and is like, you know what? That's a good thing. And basically yeah. says it's a good thing that that like the best way to engage with politics is just to have like it's just to stand for something that feels good, whatever that happens to be, because we're not going to actually have our characters have but any you, clear you know, political. We should send a businessman to Washington. He'd straighten. Those yeah, things right. Out. Like it's just it's total nonsense. It's completely vapid. And then it's proud of itself for yeah. being vapid. And in a yeah. weird way, the most interesting thing that is happening about race in the show is sort of this through line of Bucky as a white guy who is comfortable with black people and is sort of fluent in kind of the you know, historical concerns and cultural conventions of, you know, transnational blackness like that's actually a really interesting thing right like the he is the person who understands the flawed history of the super soldier program and has managed to keep some sort of relationship with isaiah and his family going that he has this sort of solidarity with the wakandans with whom he had this like really important seminal experience of like getting his mind back and then that he effectively is like the white guy at the cookout among Sam's friends and family when they're restoring the boat um, and sort of the celebrations at the end of the show. Um, and that's a really interesting role. Um, and it's, you know, I I sort of observe that as someone who has sometimes been the white person in majority black spaces. Um, you know, there was an email list I was on for a long time um, that sort of functioned that way. Um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting position and it's the one thing in the show that is not handled in like a really heavy-handed exhausting way um and it can be sort of a fraught role because you know there's the question is like is this person slumming is there sort of cultural or appropriation or appropriation of other people's trauma and experience you know what does it mean for someone to be able to jump those racial boundaries sort of socially and politically um and that's actually really, I have not seen anyone kind of discuss that through line, but it is in a way like one of the more emotionally interesting things in the show. Um, and I don't think Marvel recognized that it was interesting at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I there are there are little nuggets of interesting things here and there in the show. And, and again, they just don't really focus on any of them. Like I was surprised at how sympathetically the show treated John Walker. I expected him to be kind of a, a joke in a punching bag throughout the whole thing. And he is kind of at the start, but he's also treated very like fairly and reasonably. I mean, he's he's thrown in over he's like he he's thrown into the situation where he is the only like non-superpowered person fighting a bunch of superpowered people. He is uh he he gets he gets he gets he gets beat up, he gets he gets you know, taken apart, you know, he ends up committing what amounts to like a relatively bad PR mistake uh by uh, cutting the head off of one of the flag smashers with with the Captain America shield. I mean, he probably kinda, should probably he shouldn't do that. Derek Chauvin's the guy. Like that's But probably sh should shouldn't have done that probably except for the fact that the flag smasher totally had it coming. You know, neither, maybe he's seen the new Mortal Kombat. 
Well, maybe, maybe we'll talk. We'll get to that. Uh, but the and, and then at the end of the show, he actually like comes around and he remembers, OK, I need to, I need to, I won medals of honor for helping save people. And that is that is kind of how he, you know, uh, redeems himself there at the end. I, I I just thought it was really interesting trying to watch this guy who uh, is 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 put in a situation where he has authority that comes from a system. The system is the United States government and the United States military. And it is not enough. It is not enough for him to do the job he needs to do. Um, and that is why he winds up taking the super soldier serum. That's why he becomes a superpowered person himself, because he needs that added authority that comes from uh, excellence within himself. And what, what was interesting in this series is that uh, a, a couple of the episodes are written by Derek Kolstad, who is the uh, writer of the John Wick movies. And that is another that's another uh, franchise where the, there's a fundamental tension between the idea of uh, uh, power that comes from structures. That's the, the whole world of the continental. Right. And power that comes from individual excellence. And that's John Wick. And those two things are fundamentally at tension with each other. And I think that it's it's a really interesting idea in in a in the world in which we live, which is one where systems and structures are breaking down, individuals are being uh are getting more and more power um and you know whatever. I I don't know. I like I'm rambling now, but it's like it's like a half-formed thought in my head that I wish had been fleshed out a little bit more by this show. I really it- like the uh Julia Louis-Dreyfus stuff uh with US Agent. Um Oh, sorry. I hated Spoiler. it. I, I thought sorry, she I was kind of great. It. I thought. Um, I, don't, I, mean, well, like, I just don't understand what the of, point of that is. I don't know what's come going on, on with that. We, the point of that was to set up Dreyfus being in the Marvel Universe for phase four or 14 or whatever What it phase is. are we on? What are, I don't know, right? For the next. Why did you hate it, Alyssa? I just, I, it felt totally unmoored to anything meaningful. Like, obviously, it's just a plot setup thing. But I also just felt like, <sighs> here's where I get myself ratioed off the show. I don't like Julia Louis Dreyfus as an actress that much. Um, I think, ah, I think that's she's a terrible thing to kind say. Kind of always the same in everything, um, and I just thought the char- like the character just didn't cohere into anything, right? I mean, obvi- again, it's set up. I'm sure it will sort of emerge in some way that's theoretically interesting, but it's like okay, the vice president from Veep is showing up and like doing her trademark like snappy talking sarcastic julia louis dreyfus thing to like no discernible end or direction like why do i care at all um and that was just totally ineffective i just um, thought it was like a it was like thor's cave vision in the second avengers except good because it was like here is here every marvel product has to have a teaser for a future marvel product built into it this has like six though yeah. well that was this was one of the i enjoyed this one Ugh, I know, but at the same time, it's like, I mean, we haven't talked about, again, one of the only few good things in this, which was uh, the reappearance of Baron Zemo is like, <laughs> yeah. he he is the person who's actually right. Like, superpowered people are a massive problem. They probably shouldn't be allowed to exist. Um, and he has like a great house and a murder butler. Like, he's fantastic. Yeah. He's, he's basically, he's basically evil Batman. Yeah, exactly. He's, like, he's basically evil Batman. Except no, that but, he's I mean, wearing I, I, Bane's I, coat. Well, I, again, there's there's there is a nugget of a of a kernel of an idea here, which is that Baron Zemo is basically right about uh, superpowered people being um, uh, untenable in a, in a, in a in a real society. 
Um, and then it has, and then it it has him talk about it in the most ham-handed way possible by calling them all supremacists. So, like they're all they're superpowered supremacists. What are you taught? What does that mean? What are supremacists? Why? Like you're 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 just using buzzwords. Yeah, like you're just, using buzzwords. Just say that superpowered people are going to end up in sort of a transnational clash of fascist visions because. You know, democratic societies are not possible when some people are literally superior to other people. I mean, yeah. this uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier is a particularly acute example of the Disney Marvel uh, political movie, you know, problem, which is that they want to have political relevance and also not actually say much of anything. And so in the end, like the, if you want to draw a conclusion from Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it's do better and representation is good. And like nothing yeah. more than that, because that's the only thing that they're sort of, that's like as far as they're willing to go. And they want to be seen as saying that, but not anything else because, you know, it might offend somebody. And in theory, maybe they don't care about offending certain people if they're the bad people, but actually they want everybody to yeah. watch their stuff. And, you know, Republicans buy shoes too, but maybe and we get tax credits from them in Georgia. And Lord, who the hell knows? It's just, it's so politically confused. And so, like, on the one hand, kind of in your face with, like, the fact that it is trying to be political and also incredibly timid with everything that it says or in maybe, uh, you know, better, uh, doesn't say. Yeah. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Peter. I. I Take a stand. Yeah, I'm giving it a no I'm waffling. giving it a solid neither thumb up or thumb. It's like a completely ah. it's a completely uh, horizontal thumb. Pulling a Suderman. Alyssa. Thumbs down. Ugh. Ugh, that ugh is for Peter. I, I, know, I, Peter. I, I have to say, as annoyed as I am at the way that this show went about sort of um, presenting itself, I found it basically competent and more or less enjoyable to watch most of the time, which is just not true of a lot of other stuff. And like, I would, mm. I would much rather watch Falcon and the Winter Hooray Soldier than like, yeah, competence is competence is rare. Hooray. Hooray for mediocrity. Uh, I, I think thumbs down. I mean, I would be curious to see what the... Sh I want to see the pandemic cut. I want to see the, the cut of this show that leaves in the subplot with uh, the airborne virus yeah. uh, and wh how whatever the Flag Smashers were doing to combat all of that. that. That would be interesting because I think it would make for a much more coherent product, not necessarily a better product, but at least one that like made sense just on a basic storytelling level. This does not make sense on a basic storytelling level, therefore thumbs down. Um, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on uh, Mortal Kombat. Very important, very important topic. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. If you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week.